Thank you for downloading this episode of Folk on Foot. Before we start, I just wanted to share a brief message. If you like what we do, we really need your support to keep going. You can join our wonderful band of members and you'll get great rewards. These include access to our amazing Folk on Foot on Film archive of hundreds of songs shot on location on our travels around the UK and Ireland. To sign up, just go to folkonfoot.com slash support us. You'll also get an ad-free version of all our episodes and an email postcard from me each time we go on a walk. If you just want the ad-free version, it'll cost you £3 a month and you can get it through your Apple Podcast app or at folkonfoot.com slash support us. Finally, if you don't want to make a regular commitment but do want to show how much you love us, you can simply buy us a coffee. You can also do that at folkonfoot.com slash support us. Every penny we get goes back into making more episodes of Folk on Foot. So thank you and enjoy the walk. I can hear a buzzard in the background. We're in Ceredigion, the county of Wales, and we're here to explore the subject of rivers with the nature writer Dr Amy Jane Beer, whose latest book is called Flow and details her exploration of rivers around the UK. And with the Welsh musician Owen Shires, who lives here by this very river. He also performs under the name Canevin, and he's written a whole album about this river, the Cletter. And he's going to take us on a journey up the river to hear why rivers are such magical, mystical places. Mewn amfro brydferth a dyffryn dolenog lle rhed afon cletwr dan ganu ymlaen. Ac yno mi grwydro'n arddolau gwyrdd heilog a gweld rhyw dylysineb byth newydd ar dain. I know of a beautiful neighbourhood, a winding valley where the Cletwr River sings itself forward and there we will wander on sunny green pastures and see more beauty unfolding before us. Amy Jane and Owen, how fantastic to see you. And amazingly, the rain has stopped and the sun has come out to greet us. And this is going to be a podcast about rivers. And particularly, Amy Jane, I want you to help us understand the power of rivers in your life. You've written about them in your book, Flow. Why are rivers so important to you? I guess because I'm a human animal and rivers are life. I've spent a lot of time exploring them in a variety of ways and found more recently that following rivers has brought me back to the land in a way. It's it's earthed me in a way that I wasn't expecting. And when you say exploring them in a variety of ways, have you swum in them? Oh, all the time, yes. In them and on them and under them and alongside them. (laughs) You name it, I've done it pretty much. Kayaked on them as well? Yes, yes. I did a lot of whitewater kayaking for many years. I'm a bit more sedate now, um, a bit less of a thrill seeker possibly. And what brought you to this particular river, the Kletter? Well this is actually a new river for me. I explored 
another kletter with Owen. Um, you mean there are two kletters? There are two kletters. Oh, there's three, three or four, there's quite a few of them. Does it mean anything? What is the word? Kletter means, uh, what comes from kaled dood, which means hard or rough water. And this one, Owen, just tell us exactly where we are. We are in the southern part of Caradigion, right on the border with Carmarthenshire, really, and we are up a tributary of the Tyvee River. And, and Amy, Jane, what brought you to meet Owen? We were put in touch by a mutual friend of ours, Sam Lee, a friend of yours as well, I know. Sam knew that I was writing about rivers and he knew that Owen was singing about rivers or about this river in particular and suggested that we met up, which we did a couple of years ago, almost almost to the day, I think. It was around this time of year yeah, yeah. in 2020. And, and why is this river important to you? Well, this is the valley I grew up in, so it's very dear to me and I kind of know it like the back of my hand, really. And in a cultural sense as well, rivers are places where people congregate and give people life and so there's a culture that comes along with that so the album I made that came out a few years ago was a journey up starting with this river and expanding out from here exploring the culture of this area in song and story and I'm guessing that the chapel plays quite an important part in the culture of this area yes especially when it comes to folk music more than you might think because we are in an area called Asmotin D. This part of Caledigion is known as the Smotin D, which translates as the black spot, which sounds really ominous, but it's not quite as ominous as you might think because it was a term given to the Unitarians by the Methodists because the Unitarians, particularly in this area, were seen as extremists by the Methodists. So they, it was a kind of slander campaign. So the Methodists were quite puritanical. They weren't into folk culture. They were quite intolerant of it, and we lost a lot of folk culture in Wales because of the Methodists. They did some great things in terms of education and things, but they weren't keen on, you know, frivolity, let's just say. But the Unitarians are far more tolerant of folk culture, and I think for that reason, a lot more of it has survived in this area of Wales. Do you think if we walk down here, just turn our back a little on the river, we would find that local chapel and, and maybe you could sing there? Yeah, we can go into that, definitely, yeah. They've just restored this, well, about 10 years ago. So this is unchanged from middle of the 19th century. This is how it would have been. But you can e even the cobwebs are from the 19th century. <laughs> um, but there's a balcony going around, a wooden balcony yeah. above, and then down below, a series of wooden pews. But there's some at the front here, sitting very close to the preacher's pulpit. Would this be for the grander people? Yes. Interestingly, this denomination is much less hierarchical than other denominations of non-conformism, because the whole premise of the Unitarians was that you were supposed to have your own relationship with God. And so through their system of education, they were very much about encouraging people to read and interpret the Bible for themselves. And the, the preachers were often very kind of, in Welsh we call them tambide, which is like animated and very passionate. And you can imagine him kind of peering down over the pulpit just to like, you know, hammer the message home. And we should say it's a very plain room, the plain wooden pews and then white painted walls. And so presumably you were supposed to focus on the message and on God. Yes, not get distracted by paintings or murals or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. What are you going to sing for us in the air? Um, so I'm going to sing a song called Glanai Kletur, which means the banks of the Kletur. This song was given to me by a chap called Edgar Thomas, who's no longer with us, unfortunately. But he used to live a couple of miles from here that way. You can't see that on a podcast, can you? Which way? <laughs> West. And uh, he was a keen singer back in the day. And um, when I was researching all this stuff, he gave me books and things. And then he called me one day and he said, oh, I've found these two 
lyric sheets in the old dresser, Welsh dresser. One of the lyric sheets really stood out to me. It's a song about this valley, basically saying how quiet and tranquil and peaceful it is, you know, far away from the hustle and the bustle of the nearest town. My Where does the river go from and to? It starts near a place called Synodin, which is actually not too far from the coast, and it goes down through a village called Talgareg, and then Pontshan, which is the next village along here, and then it comes to Rhydowen, and then in Capaldewi, where I grew up, and then it enters the Tavi on the border with Carmarthenshire. So it's not massively long, it's about eight miles maybe, seven or eight miles. And are there fish? There are fish, so the Kletur is still one of the sort of stronger salmon tributaries. The Tavy, a lot of people think, is one of the best fishing rivers in Wales. Obviously, you know, a lot of uh, rivers are struggling in terms of fish numbers, but the Kletur is known, they, they do surveys annually, and it's still pretty good. But I think that could be due to the fact that the, the valley is still relatively undisturbed in terms of human intervention and agriculture. You know, it's a bit more steeply sided, it's a bit more wooded. There's less opportunity for industrial scale agriculture here. 
And Amy Jane, given that you've travelled so widely and seen so many rivers, how does this rank? Do you have a kind of ranking for rivers? Do you have a, <laughs> you know, a kind of league table in your mind? Do you know, I'm, I'm often asked what's my favourite place or my favourite animal or my favourite river and I find it's usually the one I'm with at the time. So it's a really unfair question because the answer changes <laughs> by <laughs> the you, hour. Do you like little rivers? Do you like seeking out rivers that seem secluded and away from human habitation? That's always lovely when you feel that you can have a river to yourself and just time, headspace to let the water bring ideas to you I think is a, is a lovely thing. One of the reasons I'm so keen on opening up river access for more people is it does give you that. I guess there's, a, there's an element of something that humans, I think, have probably always had since before we were human, and that is a relationship with water where it fascinates us and it beguiles us and it makes us ask questions about where is it all coming from and where is it going to and how does it keep coming, leading on to those existential questions about our own lives and where we come from and where we might be going to. So it moves your mind as well as your body when, you, when you're swimming in a river. Absolutely. The cold water is, is amazing for supercharging the metabolism and then that leads on to, I think, a much livelier way of thinking. I certainly feel more alive when I've been in a river. And the stories they bring us as well, I think, before we had science to explain you know, why the world is the way it is, we had stories to do that for us. And rivers have run through those stories since the beginning of time. So we're just walking along the road now with a rather beautiful hedgerow, Amy Jane. It is absolutely gorgeous. Well, it's a wall with a hedge on top of it and so thickly clad with mosses and ferns and fungi. Look at this bracket. <laughs> absolutely enormous bracket fungus growing just out of the, the wall. here on the roots of a tree and, and then one halfway ones, up the tree. Yes, on this, this beach, which is a, a really good tree for fungi. But these are... <laughs> Are it's like about half an umbrella, isn't it? Across, yeah, absolutely enormous. If it rains, you we could can just you could shelter under it. <laughs> <laughs> We'd have to cuddle quite close to both get under it, but absolutely beautiful. Yes, the queen of the forest they used to call beaches, sort of feminine to the oaks' masculinity. I guess maybe because they were smooth barked, and I find them very animal, very muscular. They look like they have really well honed muscles under that bark. They're quite sexy. <laughs> <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've never heard a tree described as sexy before. Oh, Matthew, surely. You must have looked at a tree before and thought, oh. <laughs> no, I can't say I have. <laughs> Trees and rivers are my kind of twin passions. <laughs> and they have so much in common. Really? Tell me why. The way they branch, the way they are rooted in one place and carry life to another. I mean, the ancients used to think that a lot as well, you know, the idea of, of world trees connected to the underworld by their roots and then coming up through the world of man and then rising up into the heavens. It's that theme of connection. They do communicate by those root networks, yes. don't they? Yeah. The more we learn about the community of trees, the more it feels almost like the magic that we, we used to use to describe how the world works. The science really isn't so far from that. They are communicating, they're sharing resources, they're warning each other underground, they're supporting each other. So trees are living in a community with this fungal network, sometimes known as the wood wide web. Well now, Owen, we're taking a little turn off the road here. There's a sign saying Garden Cottage. Is this the right turning? This is the right one, yeah. So this is where the gardener for the estate used to live. And we're um, going through some rather um, impressive 
stone gateposts here. Yeah, so Astrodon Estate at its kind of peak was enormous. It went almost the whole way to Newquay. And I think at the time it was parceled up, it was about 1,500 acres. But there was a 30-room Georgian mansion at the end of this drive. So it was quite a considerable estate back in the day. Shall I tell you why we're going to this cottage? Yeah. So the chap that produced my album, Dylan Avon, John Hollis, I met when I was living in Bath at uni. And I ended up working for him and playing with his various bands. And he used to run a, and still does run a, a little label and was involved in setting up WOMAD back in the 80s. He's been like a mentor to me as well. And in the, in the process of recording this album, he told me about coming on holiday to Wales because his grandmother used to live in Wales. I said, well, where was it, John? He said, well, I can't, I can't remember. I'll have to ask my mum where it was. And then he came back to me and said, oh, Pontchan, near Pontchan. I was like, are you, like, for real? And they, yeah, yeah, the Garden Cottage was the name of the place. And I'm like, John, that's a mile from where I grew up. <laughs> and then uh, his mum sent us some photos of John's gran in this cottage, and John as a little boy on the fields down here by the Kletwa River. an extraordinary connection. So, you know, whatever, 40 years later, he ends up producing an album about the river that he used to go on holiday to, unknowingly, just strange, serendipitous meetings. So that was a nice moment. Yes, wonderful. And now we've seen some water as we head towards the gate that leads down to the river. And I think we're going to go in amongst the trees here into a woodland path. And I'm beginning to hear the water gurgling in the background. Those tussocks that we just came through is a sedge. And I picked a stem. If you just roll that between your fingers, you'll feel it's bumpy. Yes. Sedges have edges. <laughs> sedges have edges and rushes around and grasses are hollow down at the ground. I remember the I'm so glad you're here <laughs> <laughs> teaching me things. <laughs> You've just taken something out of your bag, what's that? It's a book called Croyd Rodrafin Kletor, which means Wandering the Kletor Valley. And there's a bit of history a chap who composed this song that I'm going to sing. It was called Daniel Jones or Daniel Skibor. So Skibor is barn. So he lived in a barn. He was born about ooh, a mile and a half up the valley here in Pentrocoila. The oldest of six children didn't have much of an education and he was a shepherd at Pantstraymon and Pantstraymon is the next farm along from the manor here. He worked as a, like a travelling salesman buying butter and eggs from different farms and things. Unfortunately, his biggest customer defaulted and he lost a lot of money. So he turned to ballad writing to earn an income, singing ballads in the fairs of the land, and uh, soon became a master at this craft. So how did you come across him and his songs? The words for this song, they were printed by Gwasgomer. Gwasgomer are at Goma Press, based in Llandasil. They've been there for a long time, and they used to print ballads. Again, no melody. I actually found the melody in the British Library in London. There's um, a collection of Welsh-language folk songs there, and this voice came on, not from around here. A recording you were listening to. A recording of a chap in the 1950s right, singing the song. When you said they were in the British Library, I thought you meant there were books, but they were no, no. actually recordings yeah, yeah. in Recorded the by Peter Kennedy oh, right, in right. the 50s, yeah. yeah. And uh, it was from North Wales, and I recognised the words. So clearly the song had travelled from here all the way up to North Wales, but sort of disappeared from oral memory here, but survived up until the 1950s in North Wales. And what does it make you feel when you uncover something like that? Well, it's like bringing something back to life, isn't it? You know, you, you can marry the words and the music and, and suddenly give it life again. And 
it's like a, a window into the past you know it's um it's great and i just love that it names all the places around here that were part of his life and it so also got an image of him image of going the around person. the fairgrounds singing yeah, yeah, these yeah. ballads writing these ballads yeah and it, it says here also that he would name people in his songs and they didn't like it. Because, putting real characters into the songs. Yeah, it got him into trouble a few times, I think. <laughs> would um, he sing it for us here, right by the river? Yes, of course. I haven't told you what it's about yet, though. No, go tell us about the song, yes. It's called A Dead in D. Uh, Dead in D is Blackbird. I could go on for ten minutes about this song. It's a conversation between a young lad and the Blackbird, and the, the Blackbird is acting like a kind of avian dating service reading off a list of sort of available suitors, local suitors. So women who might be possible yeah. partners a, a, for him. A funny dear hen Braigweather, would you like the old widow over there? And he's like, well, no, don't, don't really like her. And goes through this list. And then he settles on Merger Husman, the daughter of the yeoman. And then the blackbird flies off to take the message to the object of his desire. But you never find out what happens. There's a cliffhanger. <laughs> But you, that's how folk music functions, though, isn't it? You, you either die or there's a cliffhanger. Those yeah. are the kind of two <laughs> outcomes. It's always painful, whichever way yeah, you look it at is, it, isn't it? Yeah, it's definitely, yeah. I dare indeed sing hard young lady I'll see how you're at him or now Ang wal a mercher glan and parsi, mis kuni ple idroi igari, aro deti gangari mi a derindi, a derindi. O bani di. Him right away. I hadn't shown on the moon. I guarded the unknown ladies. Cloud to wonder others, even I, Mahono, he are dead indeed, are dead Seven gang and low and 
Aderiai harian i'r cornelai Anid i'r naer am naer Ydych ffyrdd Fel can ffar weld oed i'r derin Weld yn ar ferch roedd yn ymafur Farwell E.T. Farwell E.T. the appearance of wild species in folk songs uniting nature and culture they're the sort of go-betweens I mean obviously we still hear blackbirds around here now but not all the birds that you sing about will still be here in this particular part of the country I'm thinking of nightingales and cuckoos maybe I don't know if you still hear them so this chap Daniel Skibor also wrote a song called A Bar of Arcuku The Bard and the Cuckoo I haven't heard a cuckoo here ever And that says something about the way in which species are being destroyed in this country, doesn't it? There's something really parallel about the loss of species and the loss of culture that feels very poignant, and they are related. Those two losses, I think, are part of the same failure, unfortunately, that we are complicit in. Not to put a downer on things, but but it is related, I think. The clues are all there if you're willing to look. I mean, there's houses around here called Brynagorg or Aftergorg, the hill of the cuckoo. So clearly when that house was built there were cuckoos there and there aren't any more. So the clues are in the landscape as well as the kind of culture. It is wonderful to hear you singing with the river in the background. Yeah, I mean rivers are very calming anyway but I think for me there's something also special about the fact that this song is from here. The author of this song would probably wandered along this path on his way to work. There's something very special about that for me. There's a remembering in that and maybe Jane, I wanted to ask you about the rather poignant reason that you started on this river journey, which was about the, the death of your friend. Can, mm. can you tell us what happened? So I used to do a lot of kayaking. and I was part of a very close-knit group of friends and we used to go out pretty much every weekend looking for rivers full of rain that we could hurl ourselves down. And it was a great 10 years, very intense, very adrenaline fueled. Then in, in 2012, a group of my friends set out to paddle on New Year's Day, celebrating the new year. And um, my very dear friend Kate ne- never came home from that trip. Which river and was that? That was a river called the Rawthy, runs down between Cumbria and, and the Yorkshire Dales. Yeah, it, it changed everything. It changed my relationship with rivers and particularly that kind of river, that very fast, steep white water that had been so much in my life for such a long time. And it took me a long time to bring myself to go back, particularly to that river. So you, you, you went away from rivers for a I did. For se- well, for seven years, really, I, I avoided them. And then I found myself in the area. I sort of tricked myself into going back. And as, almost as soon as I was there, I had this realisation that it wasn't the river that was to blame and I realised how much I missed that environment and so I decided there and then really to go back and re-engage with these places that had meant so much to me. But you describe very vividly the experience of looking into the river where your friend died in that kayaking 
accident and I think you saw a particular phenomenon there didn't you? I did there's a there's a pool below that rapid and I was sitting by the pool and I just washed my face in the in the water and I noticed in this very still pool what looked like a strand of spider silk just sort of swirling in the surface of the water and I I reached out to touch it and there was nothing there and I realized that actually what this was was where two flows meet it's called an, an eddy line so there was a flow that was sort of recirculating in the pool back up against the, the main flow of the river and because it was so still there you could actually see this interface between flows and the line I could see was a refraction of light coming through that interface in all my years of paddling I'd never actually noticed a detail as delicate as that and as soon as I started looking I realized there were more of them these features and it just made me think what else have I missed and that it might be worth going back with this new ambition of noticing more paying more attention and that's what I did for three years you know the the plan wasn't to write a book but the result has been a book of not just whitewater rivers but rivers of all kinds and it's spooled off into so many directions that aren't just about the natural history that's been my usual subject matter but into because culture and folklore and uh, stories and humanity All intervene. All of that, and history and, and politics and the sort of personal resonance. It, I'm just very aware of, of water as that, as that connector of all things. Just listening to Owen then, I was, I was looking at the, at the water and listening to the voice of Owen's beautiful voice, but also the voice of the river and thinking how a river is... I feel compelled to listen to the voice of a river because it is a unique moment in the life of that water. There is so much water on the planet, but most of it spends its time for thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years in the dark, either in the deep ocean or underground. And so a river, there's a joy about it where it's under the light, it's under the sun for for actually quite a brief time in the life of water. And maybe that's one of the things that makes it so irresistible to look at. It's where water's most alive. It is wonderful just to watch it mesmerisingly flowing past us, round the rocks and the light playing on the surface. Light and and water are just a magic combination. Psychologists call it soft fascination, this quality that it has that we we feel we have to pay attention to it, but it's the kind of attention that allows other thoughts to filter through. So you're not concentrating, it's almost the opposite. You can't look away and you can while away minutes and hours just staring, a bit like a living flame or, or... Um, maybe clouds have that that property as well but there's just enough movement there to captivate us without sort of commanding all our attention. Have you seen some beautiful sights along the rivers in terms of the wildlife that you've encountered? Yes I mean there's it's always there and again it's a question of slowing down and stopping and sitting and it's amazing what comes to you. Wildlife is it forgives you for all, all our noise and clumsiness that we make moving through a landscape we just have to sit and be still and it's amazing what you start to notice very very quickly you know the, the birds will start singing again insects will come close land on you so I'm a big fan of sitting still and seeing what comes whether it's you know the wildlife or the thoughts that come to you I spend a lot of time walking but I spend more time now sitting which is probably why I've put on a few pounds <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, I, I'm very tempted here just to sit and listen because you know mm. we're very attuned to sound obviously this is a podcast and just the sounds here are so interesting so let's just listen for a moment
can't part well it's amazing the number of component sounds there are in the sound of a river. Once you hear one of them, you, you tune into it and, and you can sort of find it again. And it might be the sound of the water moving or the sound of the air being taken down or released, the fizz of bubbles, or the sound of pebbles knocking together or sediment shifting. Or the mystical voices of the people who are hiding in the river. Yes. What about oh, that? There are That's so what many I like of them. Think. Oh, there are so many of them singing us down, <laughs> luring us in. So many of those, those characters and spirits and deities and the magical beings that have been associated with rivers themselves have the quality of water in that they're often very beautiful, very alluring, but also very dangerous that duality of water that it can you know it gives us life but it can also rob us of our lives it can rob you of your life especially if you're wearing heavy woolens <laughs> yes. so Owen I'd like to ask you a little bit about your musical journey because I think your father makes musical instruments yeah my dad's a heart maker 30 years ago he set up a workshop downstairs of a, an old woolen mill so what age were you when you came oh, here six or seven something like that so a very musical family, definitely. And you grew up surrounded by harps, presumably. Yeah, I grew up surrounded by harps and harp music and harpists and very familiar with the kind of Welsh canon of traditional music. And, well, and classical music as well, because he makes pedal harps. So he makes different kinds of harp. Yeah. So what, what is the traditional Welsh harp? Ah, well, the traditional Welsh harp is a triple harp. It's a chromatic harp with three rows of strings. Actually first developed in, in Italy to play operas and then it travelled to Wales somehow and it, it died out in every other part of Europe and survived in Wales and has, has since become the Welsh national instrument. And then there's what you would call a Celtic harp or a Clasach, which is the diatonic single road 26 string harp. And then there's the pedal harp, which is another beast entirely. It's like the difference between a, a bicycle and a car, really, in terms of... So the pedal harp is the one you might see on a concert platform yes, with an orchestra? And, yes, yeah. And does your dad make them all? Yeah. And what is the process of making them like? Does it take him a long time? When he was working on his own, it would take him a year to make a concert harp and about six weeks to make a folk harp. This is a trip trap troll bridge, isn't it? <laughs> so we just come onto this bridge now over the river and it's fast flowing there, but we could have a really good game of poo sticks here if we could go Should back we get and. Some sticks? <laughs> Do you think you've got any over there? Did you come across any trolls on your river journeys? I always seek trolls. I'm quite, yes, I quite like the idea of finding one. No luck yet. Oh, look at this. <laughs> a fine harvest choose of sticks. Your, choose your, so weapon. your weapon. Okay, I'm going to go for this one if that's all right. Yeah. Thank you. It's got a slight fork in it. I'll go for this wonky one. Yeah. I'm going to go for the long one. Though. Oh, yes. That's the sort of Donald Campbell's bluebird of the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very sleek. You held sleek. that one back. Yeah. Are you ready? Yep. One two, three, go. And we rush to the oh, other oh, side. Oh, there's a bit yes, of a he's got stuck. wooden... Oh, no. Oh, no. It's stuck. And then it's, yeah, it's through. Oh, there we go. Oh, Where's the other ones? Oh, that mine's was the fastest flowing bit, look. Disappeared there, without yeah, trace. Look. Oh, here comes huh? mine, very leisurely. Yeah, mine's which stuck kind of... completely on a piece of wood under the bridge. Mine's taking its time, which suits my ethos, actually. <laughs> so, slow oh, and you steady. So, you win the prize, which, and the prize is... For you to sing as a song on this bridge. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the prize for the rest of us, really, isn't it? <laughs> it is exactly. What What would you sing for us here? 
So I'm going to sing a song. Well, actually, it's entitled, so I've given it a title called Can Glod Ir Kletur, which means a song of praise to the Kletur. This is a song that was sung by a chap called Daff Jones, who was the local blacksmith and balladeer. I found it on an old documentary from 1973 called Dilinavon, that's where the name came from. That's what your album's called? Yes, yes, so it means following a river. It's a short, really beautifully shot film of an local author called Tislau Jones walking up the Kletur River and meeting local characters along the way. And one of the people he meets is Daff Jones and this song is kind of in the background and it wasn't collected, it wasn't in any archive or anything, it was just on this film, so I um, thought I'd put it on the album. And it's a short little song about um, a life lived on the banks of the Kletur, so from birth to death. I think Amy quotes one of the verses in her book, doesn't she? Got it there? Yes, yeah, so, yeah. yeah, so she quotes the last verse, Afandau dydd mynghavi, torwch fy meddrodi, Gerdwylan avon kletur yn sŵn i dyfroedd hi, which translates as, When comes the day of my burial, break my grave along the banks of the kletur in the sounding of her waters. So it really is a love poem to the kletur. Ar lannau avon kletur, amblentin mager fi, achis fysi o'i gysgu, yn sŵn i dyfroedd hi. Ac yn o bim yn chwarae, yn blentyn nwy fys iach, ach eisio dal brith y llod, yn rhydiau cletwr fach. Mae dŵr yn troi melynau, wrth fyned ar ei hynt, a rhod y ffatri hefyd, fel yn y dyddiau gynt. Y mis gybrain ar eithin, Mae'n tarddi ar y rhos, a llif y blodau gwylltio ond, o gylch ei ddwylan glos. A ffannaw dydd fynghladdu, torwch y meddrod i, ger dwylan a bonkletwr, yn sŵn ei dyfroedd hi. You can see why somebody might want to be laid to rest here, can't you? It's such a peaceful spot on this little wooden bridge over the river. You, you can see why it would be a really beautiful last resting place. Yeah. I think it also speaks to that thing of, and we haven't really discussed this yet, that the idea of Kenevin, which is the name of the project is, which is this very deep sense of connection and belonging with a particular place. And, and that's the name that you give yourself when performing this album that's yes. the name you've done the album yes. under rather than under your own yes. name tell us about that word in welsh because it's difficult to translate directly isn't it yes so there's no kind of direct translation into english but habitat is probably the closest word and i think what's interesting about that is it's got the word habit in it and so the word kenevin actually comes from farming i mean you might be able to see maybe here there's you know the, the desire paths of animals are the paths that animals tread over and over and over and wear into the landscape those are Cynevinoid in Welsh, so those are the paths. So the sense of Cynevin, which is your habitat or the place you go off on or the place that's really familiar to you, is born of that habit. You can't get Cynevin off the shelf. You know, it's a result of many years, decades of repetition and being in a landscape. And is that a concept that struck you, Amy Jane? It's one of those glorious words that we don't have in a... You know, an equivalent in, in English. Although English is this fantastic magpie language, we, we've absorbed words from lots of other languages, and yet we still didn't have a word 
for what Owen's just described, that sense of, of belonging and connection. And so to find one that's been here all along is great. I, I adore that word. But it also speaks to something that I'm incredibly passionate about. The reason I work with the Right to Roam campaign is because I believe that if we are going to be responsible for the land in the way that we need to be in order to protect it and to treat it better, we need to feel that we belong. And that habit that Owen referred to is the habit of use, of going back, not just going to visit nature as, as, a, as a recreation or something we do on holiday, but making it something that we do every day and forming a connection with place that makes that place deeply personal to us, you know, to the extent that we would say that we love it and therefore you know, are prepared to go out of our way to care for it. And that's something that the exclusion that we have from 92% of the land in England and 97% of the rivers. 97%? Uh, 97% of English rivers, there is no undisputed right of access to them. So, And that's because it, people want fishing rights and they, they yeah, flow through private pe- estates people, and so on. People own the river. They own the bed of the river up to, you know, if you own land on one side, you also own the bed of the river up to the, the midline. Um, if you own both sides of the river, then you own the whole thing and you can lay a claim to the water as it passes through that land. And in some, in some cases, there is, you know, there is an economic aspect to that where fishing rights are sold, for example. But people like swimmers and kayakers, paddleboarders, naturalists, children who want to be in the river or on the river don't pay those fees, don't, often don't recognise even that there is an expectation that they would. They just want to be in the water or be by the water. And they're forming their own Kenevin, their own web of, of connections with that place and doing so. But they're doing so by trespassing, knowingly or otherwise. And that's something that it's hurtful because of a piece of paper with someone's name on it that they think they have more right to be in that place, to, to touch that water, to breathe that air than I do. Now, one of the stories that you came across on your walk together at the other River Kletter was the story of Taliesin. Yeah, we found ourselves walking up this steep little river to the what is known as Taliesin's grave, Beth Taliesin. Am I saying that right? Beth. Beth Taliesin. And Owen recounting the story to me of Taliesin, who was the, the chief of the bards way back. Um, well, we better get him to tell the story. Yeah, let's, oh, let's, let's ask him to... What, do you want the long version or no, the short? No, the short version. <laughs> oh, blimey. OK, so... There's a lot of shape-shifting in this one, isn't there? There is. So there's a witch called Caridwen, and she has two children, one of whom is, is very beautiful, and she also has a son called Morvran, who's not the best-looking child and so she like all good mothers wants the best for him so she thinks well I'll use my witchy powers to concoct a a potion to give him wisdom and foresight and all these kind of special powers and so she boils up all these herbs in a big pot for a year and a day she's off gathering these herbs and she assigns the task of keeping the fire burning to a boy called Guillaume Bach and after a year and a day the potion is ready and but Keredwen's not back yet and the potion is bubbling and frothing and it's the first three drops that have the magical potency and uh, these three drops leap from the cauldron and land on Guillaume Bach of course they were not designed for Guillaume Bach they were supposed to be for Morvran but Guillaume Bach has the gift of insight and wisdom and Keridwen is, is not very happy let's just say that uh, her son she wanted them for her son she wanted them for her son she was angry with him he flees and Keridwen chases after him there's a sequence of animal transformation here and I can't 
quite remember the sequence. Do you remember the first? Uh, is it the hare first? The I hair. think he becomes a hare and runs for his life. That's it. He, he transforms into a hare and she turns into a greyhound and chases after him. And just as she's about to catch him, he turns into a salmon and she turns into a pike, I think. Oh, an otter. Oh, an I think, otter. Oh, 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 yes. A few different versions. Yeah, Sorry, oh, there but, might be. Yes. Yeah. And just as she's about to catch him, he leaps out the river and turns into a, a small bird and she turns into a hawk. Uh, so there's this aerial chase going on. Then, just as she's about to catch him, he's flying over a farm, I think, and he sees some corn in the field, and he goes, ah, I'll turn myself into a piece of corn. It falls to the ground, and uh, she turns herself into a chicken, and she eats all the corn. And that's the critical moment in the story, because she swallows him, and unintentionally becomes pregnant with Guion Bach. This is quite, this is like an acid trip, this story. It is very it's weird, quite, yes. yeah. <laughs> And uh, so, nine months later, gives birth to Taliesin except she doesn't call him Taliesin. And initially she wants to kill him because she's still furious. But when she sees how beautiful he is, she can't bear to do it. So like Moses, she places him in a basket and floats him down the river. Some say he floated down the river for 40 years, but he washes up on the banks and he's picked up by, I've forgotten his name now. Uh, Elfin. Elfin, that's it. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> picked up by Elfin, um, who discovers the baby and calls him Taliesin because Tal means tall and yesin is the forehead so it means broad or fair head and the second he picks this baby up Taliesin starts reciting poetry and verse and wisdoms and all this kind of stuff he's suddenly proclaimed a genius throughout the land and that's how he becomes Taliesin the famous Taliesin and, and t- did Taliesin or somebody like Taliesin really exist yes so historically speaking there's a town Taliesin where this all took place it's still there today Taliesin, we think, was a chief bard, Penkerth. He was a very skilled bard, but he was also a kind of propaganda merchant for King Hreged, which is in Cumbria. So he actually travelled all the way up to the north of England. So that part of England, from Strathclyde or Estradclyde down, he worked there as a poet. So the records indicate that he was a, a real person. But what also happened after that, we're talking 6th century here, was that people as part of the bardic tradition, would then invoke him in performance, kind of call upon the spirit of Taliesin and try and embody Taliesin, almost like an archetype, basically. I'm channeling Taliesin. Channeling Taliesin. And how well you could channel Taliesin was how good you were, basically. So in order to channel Taliesin, you had to know all his verses. It's like his greatest hits kind of thing. And that's why so much of the poetry survived as well, because it was a very strong oral tradition that required nine years training just to get to that point. I love the story, the way that story um, brings him through all those changes because as a hare and as a salmon and as a bird, he had all those different experiences of of those animal lives. And that shape-shifting is, again, one of those tropes in folklore about water, you know, because water is the ultimate shape-shifter as well. You know, it can be placid, incredibly fierce, it can be ice, it can be vapour. It's a very unusual chemical. It can transform within the range of temperatures that we find comfortable. It can transform from vapour to liquid to solid, and there's not many chemicals that can do that. So the stories about water tend to be very weird and very transformative, and Taliesin is just the ultimate sort of expression of that, I think. So we're coming down some very steep and narrow steps beside the bridge over the river now. Stone steps, rather overgrown and very uneven, quite challenging 
but it's all right because Owen's down below and he's got his guitar out, which is always a good sign. Where are we now? So we're by Bontfoyle, which is a bridge right in the middle of Capaldewi. And we are next to a weir. You can just see there the sluice gate, which is the entrance for the leet for the mill. The river drops off quite steeply from this point. There's a, a drop of, well, probably about 20 feet within a very short span. So it's an ideal place for a water mill. And um, this is one of the places that you can, if you're very lucky, see salmon. And, and what does the water mill do? It's a woolen mill, one of the few surviving water-powered woolen mills in Wales. And it's been in the family for five generations, I think. 1890, I suppose. Get some good blankets here. Yes, if the shop's open. <laughs> and what are you going to sing for us here? So this is actually a self-penned song. This was a song that I wrote during lockdown. And it was part of a project called Explore Your Archive to encourage people to make more use of their libraries and archives. And I chose an interview with a chap called Caradog Jones, who used to live in Llanabother, not far from here. And he was a bailiff and his job back in the day was catching poachers. And so it's a really fascinating interview talking about that kind of cat and mouse game between the bailiffs and the poachers and, and of course to, to know the mindset of a poacher you, you have to have been one so they were all in cahoots really basically. <laughs> and but what were they poaching? Salmon. salmon mainly yeah and, and of course back then the salmon was a, was a source of food for people and they were more than ready to risk being caught and ended up in court for poaching and um, it's, it's very interesting hearing the social dynamics but also just the sheer amount of salmon that were in the rivers at the time so they said there were so many salmon in the river that you could walk across the river on the backs of the salmon really and that there was enough salmon in the river to feed all of london and you know it was incredibly rich and is no longer unfortunately so i've included in the song also you know comments on, on that the state of affairs today and, and how we need to kind of look after the river Wow, Benny. 
प्रीर amazing insects just skirting over the surface of the river here. Yeah, there must be about a couple of hundred, maybe more pond skaters. I think they're greater pond skaters. And it's lovely looking down at them. We can see the ripples, the, the sort of ever-increasing circles of the ripples that they're creating. But also those little dimples where their feet, they have tiny, tiny bristles on their feet, which allow them to spread their weight and use that surface tension of the water to walk on it. Sometimes when the light shines down on water like this, you can actually see the effect of those little dimples on, on light. They act like little lenses that spread the light and create beautiful patterns on the floor of the river. It's those kind of details that I've become completely bewitched by and obsessed by. And they're, they're constantly years. moving, aren't they? Yeah. They're in constant motion. Presumably yep. they're attractive to fish as well, are they? Is yes. Yes, I mean, I think some of the, the flies that fishermen use to try and attract trout are designed to mimic that kind of movement. And also there's wonderful light going on here because the yeah. sun is coming out from behind the cloud and then going back behind it. So suddenly we get a burst of light on the surface of the water and then we can see the circular ripples around these pond mm -hmm. skaters. So we're seeing the sky more than the river by looking down at the water. The water's giving us the sky. One of the most extraordinary things, Owen, about spending this short time with you on this walk is that you've allowed us to scratch the surface of your habitat, your knefin, if I may say so. But what is the satisfaction to you of being so imbued 
with a place. Yeah, maybe, maybe I wouldn't describe it as a satisfaction, but it's more that I have less of that sense of tension about where do I belong. Put it this way, it's like it gives back to you. There's a, a reciprocity that happens when you engage with a place in a particular way. And I think that's what gives you that sense of belonging. It's, it's quite hard to describe, really. Mm. <laughs> but there's, there seems to be like you're, you're almost like a sort of geologist peeling back layers of rock and seeing the sediment that's underneath and, and seeing the layers of history and the layers yeah. of culture that have been handed down here. Yeah, and, and perhaps it's worth saying as well, maybe something I'm trying to do is to look at the cultural level. This question of belonging has, has two elements to it. There's the place and the people, and the culture is more invisible. There's that work going on as well. It's, it's the kind of, you know, the song lines, you could say, or, or the, the cultural lines which link places, because... Tom Waits always says every song should have an address and lots of these songs ha literally have addresses and they're all linked and there's paths that link them all and so it's all a bit invisible but it still ties into the landscape. We, we seem to have forgotten that in a, in a musical context, you know, maybe it's a bit different in folk music because folk music is very much about context uh, and history and story but we've forgotten that songs can belong to places and that, that gives it so much richness and breadth and depth that maybe otherwise wouldn't be there. Sounds like a manifesto for folk on foot to me. That's what we believe too, and that's why right. we've been recording this podcast, because we've been to the places to find the songs in the landscape, and, and it's been so wonderful that you've been able to help us to do that today. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm so pleased that you've come, and you know, I'm so pleased to be able to share this neck of the woods with you, and I'd be delighted if the English language stole Carnevin. From, from Welsh. Working on it. Just adopted, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Amy Jane's definitely stepping in that direction in her book. Uh, Amy Jane, thank you so much for, for sharing your stories with us too and your thoughts on, on rivers. You know, and it's a really inspiring book to read. Thank you. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. We rely entirely on support from our listeners to keep Folk on Foot going. So if you've enjoyed this episode, why not buy us a coffee? Just go to folkonfoot.com slash support us. While you're there, you can also sign up as a patron. You'll get great rewards, including exclusive access to films of loads of the songs we've heard on our travels around the UK and Ireland, and the chance to be in the audience of just 10 people at a front room gig live on Zoom. Plus, there's the satisfaction of knowing that every penny you give will go back into making more episodes of Folk on Foot. So just go to folkonfoot.com slash support us. The link is in the show notes. Also, please make sure that more people can find us by spreading the word on social media, subscribing or following us on your podcast app, and rating and reviewing us wherever you can. Thank you.